Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Manish Rath. I am Manish Rath, and I'm uh, here joined by my partner and friend, Larry Halperin. Larry, welcome. Thank you, Manish. Wonderful to be here today. Uh, as many of you listening today know, the OSHA 3030 is a, a webinar that we do about every 30 days. We try and hold it to around 30 minutes, no promises, but we try and pick topics that are the most impactful recent developments in the field of OSHA law, occupational safety and health law. Uh, with that said, I think we have a great topic today, Larry. Uh, about a month ago, OSHA issued a uh, press release, and it related to a pilot program trying to apply the concepts of the severe violators enforcement program to whistleblower claims. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, real quickly, for those of you who are tuning in for the first time, if you are uh, on by web, I'll put the slide up for those of you who haven't gotten audio yet. That's re that requires you to dial in by phone. And for those of you tuning in for the first time, I'm Manish Rath, joined by Larry Halpern. And let's get into what we're going to talk about today. Uh, first, I think it's important to give some background for those who aren't familiar with the traditional Severe Violators Enforcement Program, or SVEP, which relates to safety and health alleged violations. Uh, after giving you some background in order to catch everyone up in our listening community uh, onto the same page, we should talk about this new pilot program that was announced about a month ago, uh, which they're calling the Whistleblower SVEP, or WSVEP. Uh, and then finally, as we always do, we'll talk about how we think this impacts the employer community, and what we think are some practical considerations for employers uh, as to what they should do about this. So with that said, Larry, why don't we start by talking, just giving a basic background of the SVEP program as it currently stands. Uh, the SVEP program is a program that OSHA designed to try and get to uh, enhanced monitoring of the group that it believes to be uh, the most interesting with respect to safety and health violations. And they've titled it, and, and it's about five years old. Is that about right, Larry? And oh, I think this is significantly older than Well, it's a continuation of a much longer program. That's correct. I'm trying to remember when it first started. It's been a while. Yeah, and so, and so it's called the Severe Violators Enforcement Program. And uh, there are four ways that OSHA will put an employer into its severe violators enforcement program, and all of them arise out of an existing enforcement action. First, if having conducted an investigation and upon the issuance of a citation, OSHA sees that it is dealing with a willful violation, allegation, or an allegation of a repeat violation, or a failure to abate in connection with a fatality or catastrophe, then an employer will be placed on it could be placed on its SVEP program. I should point out uh, the, how dated this concept is because catastrophe has changed uh, as a concept over the past year alone. And for those of you who are long-standing friends of the OSHA 3030, you may recollect our programs dedicated to the idea that uh, it used to be three or more hospitalizations uh, or in amputation, et cetera, and that's been dramatically reduced to 
any hospitalization involving amputations, avulsions, et cetera. Uh, that's obviously an oversimplified statement of the expression, but catastrophe is now a radically changed concept. Um, I'm thinking that for purposes of OSHA record keeping and reporting, it's changed, but I'm believe for purposes of this program is staying with three. Yeah, we haven't heard any changes to this program. That's correct. And this all started probably, I believe, with issues about gross underreporting of record keeping, which then got OSHA with their instance-by-instance instance egregious program way back. And then, although I, I don't agree with the agency, they apparently believe that Congress hasn't given them enough enforcement authority through the penalty structure that's in the Act so they got creative and went through this process. I think if they used the enforcement authority they had effectively, they wouldn't have needed to do these things, but they decided uh, that was too much, you know, too much trouble to go through that process and maybe they, don't, they weren't equipped for it. So they came up with this creative scheme for trying to uh, address problems with supposedly egregious violators. The problem, you know, as we get to the next slide, is that OSHA is making a determination that these people are egregious violators without actually looking into the question of whether the OSHA position is correct. So you end up with OSHA making a determination before you get to the court. So let's let's go through each of these to get a good understanding of how somebody gets into a severe violators enforcement program, Larry. So so we have uh, the idea of one or more willful or repeat or failure to bait allegation of a violation associated with a fatality or a catastrophe, right. or two or more allegations of a willful repeat or failure to abate in a non-fatality or non-catastrophe uh, concept or uh, construct where the allegation of a violation is related to what they call high-emphasis hazards. And just real quickly, again, because we're just doing this as, as by way of background, a high-emphasis hazard includes the kinds of things that are in national emphasis programs like uh, amputation-related, uh, citations related to lockout, tagout, or woodworking, power presses, and machine and it, guarding. Right. It seems like every year OSHA adds another category to this category. That's right. Group. That's right. Combustible dust is one, crystal and silica, uh, lead uh, exposure violations, violations involving excavation, trenching. So those are the high-emphasis hazard programs. The other type is three or more allegations of a willful repeat or failure to abate associated with uh, uh, non-fatality or non-catastrophe, but nevertheless associated with the potential release of a highly hazardous chemical. So now here we have an allegation of a willful or repeat or a failure to abate, along with the potential for a release of a highly hazardous chemical. Uh, and that's associated with the PSM standard, for example. Uh, and then finally, the egregious uh, type of SVP is merely the fact that they've alleged on a per-instance basis that there are violations uh, that they believe are not necessarily associated with any of the above three criteria. Uh, to me, that seems like a catch-all. Uh, but but OSHA, Larry, they may have had something in mind that's more concrete when they describe the egregious category of, of uh, SVP. Uh, Larry, one of the things you were describing just now is, is some of the concerns that, that the employer community has raised over the years, and you and I, as part of the uh, employer side or management side, OSHA law bar, have have pointed out to OSHA uh, that there are a number of concerns about how this program is constructed. And, and one of them, to me, seems to be the idea that, first of all, 
all they need to do is out, allege a violation that's either willful or failure to abate or repeat, uh, and that that would qualify potentially for entry into the SVEP logs. Uh, but the other is that they, they didn't really conceive of a clear-cut criteria for getting off of the SVEP logs as well as they did a criteria for getting onto the SVEP logs. Um, Just to yeah. clarify, allegation means they've issued a citation. Well, that's right. And that's a very good point, Larry, because I've always kept very clear in my head that a citation is nothing more than an allegation. And Correct. it has yet to be uh, adjudicated by a proper court of law right. or even an administrative law judge. So, so OSHA goes potentially as much as six months, finally issues a citation alleging one of these conditions, uh, and then immediately at the same time puts you on the sweat list. You file a notice of contest, and by the time that's resolved, it could be a year or two or even longer later. And in the meantime, you're on the SWEP program. So one of the things we've said here uh, about one of the concerns is once subjected to the uh, severe violators enforcement program uh, enforcement measures, like the kinds you've described, uh, this may result in uh, meeting SVEP criteria. Well, for example, OSHA might decide to send a notification to the other areas where this particular company has a site. The other areas offices send out inspectors, and if you really look hard enough, you can always find a violation in every site. Nobody's ever in full compliance. So you go to enough sites, you'll get enough situations where you end up with repeat citations. Then you've got an employer who's got a series of repeat citations. Then the original case finally gets litigated two years later and is determined that it wasn't properly going to fall into the SEP criteria. In the meantime, OSHA's got you on a whole number of repeat violations. That wouldn't have occurred but for the fact that they were able to inspect you under the SVE pro, SVEP program but were not able to inspect you otherwise. Well, they wouldn't have the otherwise, point. whether they're able or not. Right. You know, no, As far as I know, nobody's ever brought a probable cause and required them to get an inspection warrant to say that they had probable cause for the inspection. So as far as I know, everybody's gone along with these things. Right, right. Uh, so these are serious concerns uh, that we've experienced over the years under SVEP. Uh, I should point out uh, some of the things that Larry's talking about have had uh, interesting consequences that are very, very real for employers. In the year 2011, OSHA placed 150 establishments into the SVEP. About half or more than half, I'd say 80 or 90, were under the high-emphasis hazards SVEP. In other words, again, lockout, tagout, trenching, amputation hazards, etc., the ones we just discussed. Uh, and while it was easy to get into the SVEP list because all OSHA had to do was make an allegation of a high-emphasis hazard violation, uh, it was very difficult for these establishments to get out of the SVEP program because, uh, as Larry, you just described, it only takes – once you're in the SVEP program, OSHA can continue to inspect under the auspices of SVEP. Once it conducts inspections, it can find uh, other violations, uh, and all you need is – a serious violation under those subsequent investigations for OSHA to say that that justifies that that establishment must remain in the SVEP. But in fact, as we know, about 75% of all inspections result in an allegation of a serious classification of violation. So once you're in the SVEP program there's and they conduct follow-up SVEP inspections, there's a 75% chance statistically, that they'll find something to 
keep you in the SVEP program until the next inspection, at which point there's another 75% chance that they continue to keep you in the program, on and on like that. And that, to me, is a little bit like debtor's prison in the sense that uh, once you're in the program, you, you're put into a losing battle for how the most, even the most well-intentioned employers can find a way to get off the list. Well, it's interesting. You've got this statistic of 75% of all inspections result in alleged serious one of the questions I would like to know is what percentage of the SVEP follow-up inspections result in an alleged serious? And I would imagine if OSHA really wanted to, they'd send an inspector in and say, go find one and stay there until you do, and you could stay in that program forever. Furthermore, the language usually in OSHA's directive says, under these conditions, you may get out of the program because they don't want to be legally committed and bound to it. So they put language using the word may in there, and then they got the right to change their mind and say, well, we, we changed our criteria. Sorry about that. You're still in the program. So with a structure that's easy to get onto an SVEP list but difficult to get off of, what has happened in the intervening four or five years is precisely what one would think would happen. The number of establishments uh, on the SVEP logs have grown and grown and grown. In 2014 alone, that list grew by 23%, and uh, resulting in 423 sites in the program by mid-2014. Remember, uh, four years earlier, it had been, as little, three years earlier, it had been as little as 150, if you call that little, and had now, grown to 423. If my Excel qualifications were a little better, maybe I could figure it out. But if you go on the OSHA website, they have a log and they show the number of, well, the swept inspections and also identify every site. So for anybody who, you know, takes the time, they they publish it to that extent. They also announce them when the citations are issued. How much more publicity a David Michaels organization would plan for these remains to be seen. But you can see the direction we're heading between this and the injury and illness record keeping data and the plan to publish that in the direction this agency is going. Yeah, I think that's right. So now that gives you guys a background uh, here in the OSHA 3030 community of what SVEP is and what it really implies in terms of the dangers for employers. Uh, now, uh, fast forward to May 31st, I believe, of uh, 2016, about a month ago, and OSHA, May 27th, OSHA, uh, quietly published an internal document, I shouldn't even say published, quietly finalized an internal uh, document, which is a memorandum internal to Region 7, and then they put out a press release on May 31st. The press release, by the way, is all you will find, if I'm not mistaken, as of last week, four weeks later, after the publication of the press release, that, would, that was all you would have found about this pilot program. It was very quietly released. Uh, and nowhere on OSHA's website could I find anything other than the press release. I couldn't find any underlying actual authorizing documents. Uh, but, but fortunately, Larry, people you and I know at OSHA were kind enough to provide us with the underlying internal memorandum. Uh, and so this is how we've learned more of the details about the program that we're sharing uh, here on the OSHA 3030. Uh, so, so it's an internal memorandum which creates a pilot program strictly for OSHA's Region 7. Region 7 uh, covers Nebraska, Kansas, and Missouri. Uh, it also covers Iowa, which is a state-planned state. But as you know, uh, even in, in the state-planned state of Iowa, federal OSHA has jurisdiction over, for example, uh, government employees, uh, certain marine terminal, marine activities, longshoring, et cetera, uh, construction projects that span interstate over the bridges, et cetera. Uh, but, but I think the primary uh, federal jurisdiction is over government employees 
and, and government establishments. Yeah, I don't know if a state plan has to have a whistleblower provision in it or whether federal maintains jurisdiction over the issue if they don't. But anyway, the additional background, as I recall, is that OSHA amended or updated its whistleblower enforcement manual in January of this year. And then the Whistleblower Protection Advisory Committee issued some really extensive guidelines that urged OSHA to get into the environment of the workplace. OSHA put out the uh, Whistleblower Protection Guidance document in draft earlier this year, and this seems to be the next step of trying to implement some of the things that the advisory committee had recommended. So so here what they've done is they've tried to apply the SVEP to whistleblower claims, and uh, I think that there's a lot of language here that remains open to interpretation or stands in want of clarification. But with that said, uh, what it it describes as a plan to put employers into a whistleblower senior by us uh, serious violators enforcement program if there's a merit based whistleblower case which i i gather means that there is a reasonable cause at the inspection or investigation level to believe that there's a whistleblower violation this is not however a finding from an administrative judge, and certainly not an adjudication from a uh, proper uh, proper court. And uh, so, what it requires in order for OSHA to place the criteria that they've created for placing an employer on the whistleblower SVP is a merit whistleblower case plus one additional condition, one of the following on this list. Uh, it could be a case that is a whistleblower. Uh, allegation directly related to a fatality or one that involves an egregious safety or health enforcement case. Now, and within this memo, they've used the word egregious in two different ways. Uh, here, I can only uh, gather that egregious is used to mean what OSHA has referred to as an egregious violation, meaning multiple instances of the same violation or multiple effects from the same violative practice or condition. Uh, or uh, where an employer has a rate-based incentive program for reporting injuries. Nowhere in this internal memorandum do they describe what they mean by a rate-based incentive program. Uh, but I think we, we probably know, and Larry, I'm going to ask you to speculate on that in a minute. Uh, or where an employer is, on, uh, is already placed on the safety and health SVEP logs, which we described earlier, the traditional safety and health-related uh, serious violators enforcement program. Uh, or what they call a significant whistleblower case. They don't define that either, but here they're basically saying even if the first four criteria don't apply, if we think this is a significant whistleblower case, we may nevertheless just put them on SVEP. Uh, or finally, where there have been three or more whistleblower cases in the past three years, uh, presumably including the case. Uh, you, you can say, Larry, presumably including the case uh, at bar at the moment, but I, I would think that it means three or more prior whistleblower cases, and that's what they would mean by the expression in the past three years. But again, I'd say that that is fair, to be fair, that is unclear. Uh, yeah, that, that's my interpretation that presumably including this case, because I'm just putting my, trying to put my head in where I think OSHA's people are, and yeah. that's where it came out. You're better at that than me, but I think it means the process. <laughs> so, yeah, where it says the employer has rate-based incentive program, uh, unfortunately, although, you know, there's litigation on that. We don't have time to talk about it, but um, I believe that means any time you have it based on lagging historical indicators dealing with the occurrence of either a single injury that's OSHA recordable or a rate. 
whatever. So it could be, I mean, if the rate is zero, that's still rate-based. Um, and just to be clear, we're talking about a whistleblower case under any one of 21 statutes, not just the OSH Act. So in theory, you could have a, an SEC complaint, and then OSHA would say, we're going to put you in this step program because you've got a rate-based incentive program or you're on the health and safety log. So it's it's unclear, you know, how this is going to be enforced, but the way it's written, it, it seems to be incredibly broad. With that said, I think there's a lot here that's broad, including the significant whistleblower case, but I think you're right, Larry. One of the problems with this third bullet uh, where an employer has a rate-based incentive program for reporting injuries is that they are really doing a – the work of some other safety and health priority, which is their essentially their antagonism to the concept of incentive programs. Right. So the, the section 1904.35 is the one that requires a reasonable recording to, procedure. To be clear for our friends on the OSHA 3030, you're referring to the OSHA uh, injury and illness record keeping right. rule, 19, oh, which is 1904.35 is to communicate to employees how they can go about reporting their injuries and illnesses. Right. It's been referred to a number of ways as employee participation, employee rights, anti-retaliation, depending on which press release OSHA uses. But the gist of it was a requirement to have a reasonable reporting procedure, which OSHA then reinterpreted to mean that you couldn't have anything would defer, deter or discourage supposedly reporting. And um, so basically this looks like another way of trying to and incentive programs that are based, that are rate-based. So OSHA issues this press release, as we've talked about, and uh, we're talking about uh, the idea that uh, that you'd be placed on the whistleblower SVEP list uh, under those circumstances, and then the memo moves on to what OSHA will do once placing somebody on the uh, placing an employer on the SVEP whistleblower list. Uh, it will issue correspondence immediately upon making the allegations sufficient to put an employer on that list. It will copy those allegations uh, together with its own uh, investigative findings. These aren't ALJ findings, much less a proper court's findings. Now, just to be clear, I put the word, we put the word allegedly in there. OSHA basically says if you have this good faith case, supposedly in their mind, reasonable cause, and then you have, let's say, uh, the uh, incident-based program, that somehow becomes egregious behavior, and they give it that label. Right. And then, of course, that's what's going to go in the press release, and it, there's a total disconnect between the facts and that kind of an allegation. But no, that's right. That's, that's what exactly it says. It. Thank you, Larry. Uh, so, so upon making those allegations that, that are sufficient to put an, uh, an employer on the SVEP whistleblower list, OSHA will immediately send a copy of its own investigative findings uh, and court filings, along with this press release, to the employer's headquarters, to any uh, federal agency, all federal agencies with primary enforcement in the area. In other words, if, for example, it was a uh, Sarbanes-Oxley whistleblower claim, then they would send it to the appropriate federal agency responsible for enforcement of that statute. Uh, and as well to the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. I will leave it to OSHA to explain the connection there. Uh, they will send a copy of all those documents to all labor unions that are representatives at that establishment, and they will send a copy to all Department of Labor agencies that have jurisdiction over that work site or establishment, 
as well as any state plan, state uh, safety and health agency. No, we still don't know the outcome of the blacklisting regulations, but you could see what would happen if the rules dealing with federal contracts. Larry's referring to to a rule that came out two Januarys ago or this January. I've no, I'm not, they've been fighting over as far as I right recall about this. And this this relates to contractors and subcontractors for federal contract work, and whether or not uh, consideration in the award of contracts must include a sa uh, an employer safety and health record. Right. So. So now you have these uh, activities that OSHA takes, uh, that, that they take these actions immediately with the allegation, and then they proceed with uh, contesting and adjudicating uh, whether or not, in fact, they're right. Meanwhile, they're hoping all these other agencies and unions take some action to make life difficult for the employer. The investigative side, Larry, will also make a referral to OSHA itself as an enforcement arm as to whether or not there's a violation of the section you were referring to, which is 1904.35, that record-keeping rule that you must communicate to employees how they can report. In other words, the idea that maybe you retaliated against an employee also for reporting an injury, uh, to let OSHA investigate that possibility as well. Recognizing that that particular requirement is stated till at least November 1st of the outcome of the litigation. That's right. So now, we talked about the difficulty, Larry, of how to get off of a safety and health Senior viol uh, serious violators enforcement program. Uh, how the reason that was important to talk about is because it relates to how difficult it is to get off of the whistleblower SVEP. Here they've created a, at least nominally, I'd say, created a policy for how an employer may be removed from the whistleblower serious violators enforcement program. Uh, and what they say is they'll they will remove an employer from that list if the employer does not meet the criteria for SVEP after a court has made that decision. Larry, how long does it take to go through an investigation and then challenge this uh, administratively and then go straight to court and get an adjudication there? year and a half. It depends on the court, right? Yeah. could be much longer. could be, but, but the, the issue, though, is when all this communication goes to the labor unions or all the others or somebody else, whether OSHA is going to encourage somebody to file an actual complaint, additional complaints, which are going to result potentially in additional investigations so that even if this one turns out to be thrown out by the court, there could actually be an additional one which would come along, which would keep them in the program anyway. Well, that's right. And you and I were writing uh, uh, notice of contest and, and researching the basis for it recently, and I think I came across a case that had uh, gone to court six years later, if I'm not mistaken. So there are one, uh, cases that take a long time, particularly at the review commission stage, where there's a great deal of backup uh, backlog. So the other possibility is after three years of good behavior, uh, the employer may submit an application for removal from the list, and the regional investigator will, for Region 7, will review for eligibility for removal. And they've got a, they're proposing a, that they set up a whistleblower SVEP committee, which will make the decision on that application. And again, this is, I guess, what you call commonly understood language, where we use the term good behavior. OSHA doesn't call it that, but we're trying to get across the concept and calling this a probationary period. That, that Those are our words, but I think they reflect the intent of what's in the, in the directive. And I think the criteria they're going to use, as they described in their memo, for removal is, is uh, tough to meet. What they're going to look at is, uh, first of all, what corrective action the employer has taken, and I don't know what an employer can do when you're talking about whistleblower claims. If they have a whistleblower policy, an open-door policy, an anonymous complaint policy, I don't know what else they can do 
to make uh, whistleblowers more welcome or comfortable with blowing the whistle. So, but they're going to look at to see that you took additional corrective action. They're going to look at whether or not there are conditions which have a chilling effect. And here I think that they're also uh, tilting against incentive programs. Uh, and they're going to conduct employee interviews to try and determine whether or not there was a practice of disincentivizing self-reporting. Um, and then finally, they're going to look at any other aspects of employer uh, compliance in other aspects, like actual safety and health uh, violations, whether the employer is on the safety and health SVEP list, uh, whether there have been any egregious citations uh, or other whistleblower cases. And I, frankly, I got to say, that flies in the face of uh, established ru uh, federal rules of evidence where the idea that prior bad acts should not be probative as to whether or not somebody has done something wrong in this case. Here, you have somebody who's going to remain on SVEP simply because someone else made a claim, however lacking or uh, meritorious or lacking in merit that other claim might be, it would be sufficient to be a part of the consideration by the committee, the SVEP committee, for determining whether you get removed from the list. If you had what people generally would call a true bad actor, this program makes sense. But for the occasional situation where something happens that's out of character of an organization, this can be a potentially brutally harsh experience it's not justified but this particular program doesn't seem to provide any sort of uh, way of ensuring that that kind of an employer isn't going to be unduly burdened with this kind of a harsh enforcement program yeah i think that's right with that said we've talked i think a great deal already about how this is going to impact employers i think one of the biggest concerns i have as a general concept is that it is very easy to get on to the serious violators enforcement program list, whether we're talking about whistleblower or otherwise, but it is very difficult to get off of the list, which puts an employer in an endless cycle of inspections and interviews uh, and, and follow-up alleged violations. Uh, one of the other concerns I have, and I think this is a grave due process uh, concern, is that OSHA begins taking adverse action immediately after making an allegation and potentially over a year or several years before there's been any determination that this was a meritorious allegation. So uh, so an employer now witnesses these notifications going out and getting publicized uh, to unions on their own press release, etc. Uh, and there are subsequent follow-up inspections, investigations, employee interviews, all on the basis of an unadjudicated uh, allegation. Uh, and I think that that is a serious concern where regards the due process rights of an employer. I can't tell you, listening in this OSHA 3030 community, how many citations I've contested successfully uh, where the allegation that OSHA had raised was completely meritless and completely founded on a misunderstanding of the law or a misunderstanding of the facts that are taking place in the workplace. And if there are so many, in my own experience, then I, I worry greatly for the employer that is facing an allegation of su sufficient to place them on a severe violator's uh, enforcement program. Uh, with that said, the other concerns I have uh, that I think impact employers uh, is when you look at the uh, process for uh, placing somebody on the SVEP, you, you see that there is this implication for incentive programs, which have been highly relied upon by the employer community 
as a, a bona fide method of managing and reducing the incidences of safety and health, uh, uh, safety hazards and, and health hazards in the workplace. Uh, the other problem I have is when you look at what it takes to get on the whistleblower SVEP, uh, part of what it takes to get off of it involves safety and health violations or allegations of safety and health violations. And here there are 25 statutes involved in, in OSHA's whistleblower jurisdiction, and most of them are not safety and health related. So they've conflated whether or not you remain on the whistleblower SVEP list with whether or not you have safety and health violations, and the two may have nothing to do with each other. Uh, so those are all, I think, serious impacts upon employers as they struggle to comply with the host of laws that are impacted by this, this internal policy. So, Larry, what should employers do in light of this uh, internal memorandum? Well, one of the things certainly that's practical that OSHA is encouraging is a review of various practices to ensure that to the best that you can you have um, open communication and practices that don't encourage either a, a perception of discrimination or retaliation or actually involve those kinds of things, which means looking carefully at disciplinary programs and incentive programs and drug testing programs and those kinds of things and promotions um, in terms of personnel management and all, all the issues that come into play in looking at potential discrimination and retaliation issues. Uh, yeah, yeah, beyond that, it, it's important right from the beginning to, to treat every whistleblower case very carefully. Make sure that you um, got the competent people to assist you in investigations and legal support. Um, certainly got to very carefully develop responses to investigators' questions and do whatever's possible to challenge uh, an allegation so that hopefully the investigator will conclude there's no meritorious claim in the first place. And the final thing to do would be to seriously consider reaching out to OSHA's DOL and trying to clarify and narrow the scope of this document so it doesn't bring in within its scope people that really weren't intended to be brought in within its scope. Larry, I think one of the other things, and it's not up on the slide, but one of the other things that employers ought to consider doing is if they're placed on the severe violators enforcement program, either forcible or otherwise, subsequent uh, uh, investigations or interviews or, or physical inspections, uh, I think that the employer could challenge those uh, under a Fourth Amendment challenge on the basis of any of the questions that might arise as to the legitimacy of the SEEP program based on due process rights, et cetera. And I think that that can happen at the follow-up inspections or investigations level. And I think that's a really important point about the severe violators enforcement program uh, that employers should consider if, they're already been, if they've already been placed on it, either for this whistleblower severe violators enforcement program, uh, pilot program, or for the safety and health SVP, either way. Larry, thoughts? No, I agree with you. And, and certainly, although it's probably obvious to people, if, if there's an inspection that doesn't involve the OSH Act, uh, there ought to be a way of making sure the inspector or investigator is brought to a facility where there aren't likely to be any OSHA issues that will be raised. Oh, well, good luck with that, though. I think that's that's a tough thing for an employer to achieve. 
Well, if it's an SEC violation, it's, it's not hard. I mean, there shouldn't be any reason to go into a factory. Uh, there should be some office, some place that somebody can have an investigation that, that wouldn't involve that kind of a site where you oh, end up with uh, potentially looking at those kind of things and making referrals. So, I mean, there's some there's some practical things people can do to try to minimize potential risk. Uh, you're making an excellent point, Larry. The scope of the follow-up inspection or investigation should be narrowly tailored to the stated purpose that the agency is using for conducting the investigation. I think that's a really important challenge to raise. So with that said, uh, thank you all for participating in this OSHA 3030, and thank you, Larry, for joining me on the OSHA 3030 today. The next one will be on Wednesday, August 17th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, this particular program will be posted on our website at khlaw slash 3030. And we invite you to uh, check it out if you've missed it or if you wanted to share that uh, program with anyone else. Uh, we would also suggest that you can take it on the go with you. You don't have to be at your desktop. You can download it as a podcast at your favorite podcast uh, sources, iTunes or Podcast Addict. Uh, if you're having trouble locating those, then feel free to contact us. Thank you all very much. Larry, thank you very much for participating in today's Social 3030. We'll talk to you all again in about one month. And until then, stay safe.